Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. In politics, Karl Rove is a guy who barely needs an introduction. Uh, He is uh, universally known as the architect of George W. Bush's two elections to the presidency, uh, but has a rich and long and interesting story about his life in politics. Karl and I were part of a uh, panel on the U.S. election in, the, in Ukraine uh, last week. And while we were there, I took the opportunity to sit down with him. Carl Rove, when people hear your name, uh, they think that, that Texas, that's, you're, a, you're a Texan in everyone's mind. But you, you're really not a native Texan. Yeah, I'm the worst kind of Texan. I'm a convert. They're, they're, like, <laughs> they're like Catholic converts. They're even more fervent in their Catholicism. Converted Texans are even more fervent in their Texasism. <laughs> but you uh, tell me about uh, growing up. And uh, you, I, I'm a guy who started following politics like at a freakishly young age. You were the same way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, and which is odd because my family was completely apolitical. Huh. Uh, we never talked politics around the kitchen table, and uh, nobody was active in politics, and you know, no one was a precinct chairman or you really? know, delegate to the county convention. So I don't know where it came from, but I've always, as long as I remember, I've been interested in politics. And you know, I, I my first uh, thing was when uh, JFK came to. St- Stuyvesant Town, New York City, where I was uh, raised when I was five years old in 1960. I always say, you know how long ago it was that a Democrat was campaigning 12 days before the election in New York. <laughs> but but uh, you were uh, you followed that race, uh, and you were a Nixon guy. Yeah, I was a Nixon guy. I think my first political memory is that of Dwight Eisenhower suffering a heart attack because mm-hmm. he part of his rehabilitation, President uh, Eisenhower's rehabilitation was in Colorado Springs. So it must have been in the papers and so forth. But, yeah, I was involved in the – I played a critical role in helping move Colorado into the Republican column in 1960. <laughs> I had a bicycle with a wire basket on the front, and I somehow scored a Nixon bumper sticker and uh, put it on the front of my bicycle and rode it up and down the street in Arvada, Colorado, thinking somehow this was a you know really persuasive activity on behalf and of Nixon. people said, if that Rove kid's for Nixon, I'm yeah, for Nixon, God, too. Yeah, my God, exactly. If that little kid, of course, the little Catholic girl across the street was not for Nixon. She was for Kennedy. When she saw me, she literally pulled me off the bicycle, got on top of me, and pounded the crap out of me, gave me a bloody nose. So. Yeah. So you learned a few things from that. Yeah, right? I decided I, <laughs> I hated a, losing more than I liked winning. But I mean, <laughs> but uh, no, that's uh, that was a, a great experience. A great and then, and then you uh, you moved to uh, Salt Lake City. Yeah, well, intermediate stop was uh, was um, 
Reno, Sparks, Nevada, a little railroad town that's outside of Reno that's now just, you know, they blended together, the huge suburb of Reno. And uh, that's where I got my first experience in uh, in governing. I I worked this summer, I was 14 years old, and worked this summer in the Washoe County Clerk's Office. Maybe I was 15. And uh, had a great summer working, uh, filing records, you know, divorce decrees and bankruptcies and so and forth. And filing away demographics of uh, yeah, exactly. northern Nevada yeah, exactly. for later. Exactly, exactly. Also, uh, it also got a snake to kiss from the incredibly attractive 18-year-old clerk. I mean, <laughs> uh, my final night in, in before leaving for Salt Lake. Yeah, but I went to high school in Salt Lake. And you were a, a student politician. Yeah, but completely uh, inadvertent. I was, I, was, I was a tiny little guy with a squeaky voice on the debate team. And uh, wore pu- uh, hush puppies, carried around a briefcase, had a pocket protector. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Oh, yeah, Those had a pocket protector. Pop- yeah, 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 exactly. So I was a so the word nerd, nerd kind of comes yeah, to yeah, mind. Complete huh? nerd. So my um, junior year, I was appointed to the election commission, which you know had to count the ballots and stuff. And then the student body uh, advisor, Pat Farrell, who's a terrific uh, teacher, um, decided that I ought to run for second vice president of the of the school which was the student council president and so which was completely you know like wait a minute the only people that i ran with were the complete nerds on the debate (laughs) team uh so she got the she got a friend of mine craig barlow who was on the uh, uh basketball team we had a great basketball team and his girlfriend who's who had a yellow mgb uh and got them to be my campaign chairman and uh, made me resign from the election commission and and ran against John Sorensen, who'd been the chairman of our, who'd been the, the president of our sophomore and junior classes and was now running for the second VP. The big thing, thing there was you had to do posters, and I got the really cool nerd artist kids to, we, we did posters, make cutting things out of magazines and, you know, paste them yeah. up there. And anyway, they were cool posters, was slightly, uh, you know, slightly for a Mormon high school uh uh, you know, dangerous lyrics, let us say. <laughs> and and then, uh, the, but the big thing was you had to have a big, you had to give a speech, which I was pretty good at, but for the student body. Uh, and you'd do a skit. And uh, Sorensen, John Sorensen, had uh, won both his, uh, both his races by uh, having himself wheeled into the uh, auditorium in what was a makeshift outhouse, <laughs> which was, you know, like John... Uh-huh. Get it right. So we sort of assumed that that's what he was going to do, and we figured out how to one up him. And we uh, got a uh, VW convertible and uh, spirited it into the school the, through the shop. The shop teacher was a uh, sort of amused at this whole idea, but so he let us sneak it through the wide doors in the shop <laughs> and into a hallway. And so when it came time for me to be announced. Uh, they threw open the doors, and I was driven into the into the high school audit, the high school basketball uh, uh, court with uh, a uh, with Barlow behind. I think it was Barlow behind the wheel with a with a driver's hat on, and I was in the back seat with two incredibly attractive senior women on either side of me, and gave my speech and won. So. Uh, I was, and did I was, he come in in the outhouse again? Of course, he came in the outhouse. Yeah. Uh, you know, our Oppo was correct. He so came in the exactly, outhouse. these are early lessons that, yeah, that paid. Exactly, that paid exactly, dividends. exactly. And uh, you, uh, 
You also worked in campaigns when you were in Utah. Wallace Bennett was the yeah. senator. You worked for him. Yeah, I did. Um, actually, the, the, I owe a great debt to the fellow who told me I had to they had to work in a campaign. I, I was had a great teacher, Eldon V. Tolman, who was about as different from me as night and day. He was a uh, he was a Johnson Democrat. I remember vividly him talking one day about the United States Senate, the United States House, and and the best. Uh, Example of an outstanding leader was Gail McGee of Wyoming, yeah, right. the chairman of the Post Office and Civil Service Committee, <laughs> and uh, he was the he was the steward of the local affiliate of the Utah Education Association, the teachers union. But he and but he he saw something in me and said uh, he was very stern, very formal. Everyone was Miss or Mister, and he said, Mister Rove. Everyone can get a A in the class by satisfactory completion of the coursework, except you. <laughs> you. You must get involved in a political campaign. And he didn't care which party. He just he, he saw that I had a political interest and he wanted to fan the flames. So I, I remember going to the headquarters. Bennett was 70-some-odd years old, running for re-election, opposed by a young anti-war professor from the University of Utah, J.D. Williams, and um, – it was uh, 1970, and uh, excuse me, 1968, and everybody was sort of wired up. And uh, so I walked in the headquarters, and there seemed to be this really, really old guy who was in charge of the campaign. Uh, looking back now, he probably was in his mid to late 30s. Yes. But at the time, he seemed like ancient. Yes, that's what they say about us. Now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Really old dudes. <laughs> and uh, he said, uh, he said, uh, I said. Uh, what are you here for? And I said, I want to volunteer. And he said, well, great. Get some, you know, do this or that this day. I don't know what it was. I can't even remember what it was. But he said, get some kids and come back this weekend and make signs. So I got a couple of buddies. We showed up and we, you know, had hammers and, you know, nail guns and stuff and made signs for the weekend. And he said, great. You're chairman of, uh, you know, Salt Lake County students for high school students for Bennett. So we did lots of fun things. Uh, and what was really interesting is the guy's name was Tom Coralogus, whom you may know. Tom yeah, was yeah the, I know the name. Yeah. yeah, he was chief of staff for Bennett. And then he was an advisor to Nixon. He was yes. an advisor really to Ford and then Reagan and then both Bushes. And he was, became, he was sort of the wise man in Washington. Yeah. And if you had a tough confirmation fight, particularly for the Supreme Court, you drew Bennett, you drew uh, Coralogus in. He would handle it for you. And, um, then, so he was the guy who gave you your first like gave me my first start, first start first start in politics uh, and and let me just say say yeah. one thing about the teacher though everybody has a story like that. yeah they do don't they everybody has a story like, I had yeah. a I had a first and third grade teacher named Mrs Roth I skipped second grade in the New York public schools but she. Made us was that an administrative cover. error? Was that an administrative error? They just missed the paperwork? They just wanted me out of there quicker. Okay, was good, what good, it was. Yeah. But, uh, but she exposed us to all these you know, newspapers and talked about current – with little kids, you yeah. know, and oh, just yeah. opened our eyes to all kinds yeah. of things. It, it, teachers – I, I, I'm not. I don't want to engage in the in a parochial in a yeah. parochial debate here. Yeah. But let us assert that the oh, te- teachers change role. lives. Huge you know? role. Good ones really change lives. Uh, so in '68, anyway. maybe people don't remember this, but Utah was a battleground state. Yeah. And so Nixon, Wallace, and Humphrey all came to Salt Lake City, and uh, Mr. Tolman took us to every appearance. And got a bus. We went early because he wanted us to get right up front. Yeah. And so we were there at the Mormon Tabernacle for each of their appearances, right down front. 
and uh, it was eye-opening. That's the other thing that lesson to draw from all of this. I'm sure you always get asked this question, well, how do I get to be you? And I always tell kids, just find somebody you're passionate about. Find a campaign, jump in, and actually smaller is sometimes better, and volunteer to do anything. And if you volunteer to do anything, you're going to get a lot of experiences, and you're going to meet a lot of people, and you're going to work your way up. Yeah. <clears throat> well, you've got a lofty answer. My answer is read Chapter 4 of my book. Uh, so, but no, <laughs> i got to learn that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but no, absolutely right. And uh, particularly the, the thing about smaller, because, I mean, it, you know, it's uh, actually the Bennett campaign was a lot of fun, even though it was a, a Senate campaign, because Utah was a relatively small, small state. state. Yeah. And uh, so you got to do a lot of things. Uh, incidentally, just to carry that story forward, uh, I kept in touch with Cora Lugos over the years. And uh, after, and he was, he was the wise man. I mean, literally, John Tower, he handled that. He handled all the Supreme Court nominations for yeah. Nixon and yeah, so Yeah, no, forth. he's a, he's a yeah, legendary yeah. guy. Yeah. So uh, he went to Baghdad as an advisor to the provisional authority. And so our ambassador came home from Belgium, and I was talking to the president about it, and he said, got any ideas? And I said, yeah, I got one weird idea. I said, Tom Korologist, he's, he's sort of semi-retired now, but he's served his country uh, with, uh, without you know, qualms, stepped away from his business, you know, told his clients, I'll see you in six months, and handled tough assignments for every president, and it handled a tough assignment for you and uh, handled some confirmation. He was helpful on Roberts and, mm-hmm. and uh, Alito. I said, why don't we make him the ambassador? He said, good idea. You call him. So uh-huh. you know, What a cool the, thing. What a cool call to be yeah. able to make to say the president would like you to consider being the ambassador to Belgium, which was a, a great signal to other people if you in the political arena, and but you put your country first and – are say willing to say, you know what? I'm, you know, I'm going to stop receiving that paycheck for a while so I can go serve and help the president get a confirmation of a tough nominee or help superintend a Supreme Court nominee through the through the through the paces. Uh, there, 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 there might be something else. I talk about Les Lofty. I have a Les Lofty story, but I got to call Stan Musial and tell him he was going to get the Medal of Freedom. So there we go. That was. That was cool, but yeah. not that not not an old friend. That must have yeah, been really yeah. something. Yeah. So you went on to the University of Utah, yeah, uh, and you plunged yourself into not your studies. Like almost every political person I know is on the uh, off and off year on year plan of yeah. I'm going to do politics, and if school fits in it, yeah, I'll try and make some time yeah. for it. So you, but you became. Like immersed in the campus Republicans. Yeah, got active in the college Republicans there immediately, and also the University of Utah has a great institution, sort of like you know you've got in Chicago the the Hinckley Institute of Politics at the University of Utah, which was headed then by J D Williams. No kidding. And I became close to J D, wonderful guy, and uh, had a wonderful experience there. Uh, But you're right. I I, by by the by the end of my freshman year, I was I received a job offer to work in a campaign in Illinois. Yes. And so and so I worked that campaign and registered to, for classes in September uh, of the of nineteen seventy and showed up at, in in November. Yeah. So, but uh, well, I run this Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, and I know that there are a lot of old professors who are turning over in their grave, uh, remembering how. Uh, slighting I was of my duties as a student when I was messing around writing about politics instead uh, at that time. 
Uh, I should ask you what 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 attracted you to the Republican Party, like as a as a nine year old and as uh, yeah, Uh, you know it's a a good question. I'm not certain I've got a good answer. I think part of it has to do I was growing up in the West, Mm -hmm. and now the West, you know, Colorado because of the old sort of remnants of the populist revolt of the early part of the 20th century still was crankily you know a swing state. Uh, Utah was a swing state. Uh, Nevada had been largely again Democrat because of it's you know the old free silver battles and miners yes. and so forth. But I you know I think the West is uh, growing up in small towns in the West and and that's where we mostly lived. Where you know was sort of like Washington was far away and you had a sense of personal responsibility and you're responsible for yourself and with that a sense of personal freedom. And I just think uh, I sort of. Um, you know, sort of ended up going that way. Another part of it had to be, though, uh, I don't know how or why, but, uh, you know, everybody has their fifth grade civics paper. The first time you have civics in the fourth or fifth grade and you have to write a paper and, you know, it's, it's the three branches of government mm-hmm. or, you know, our Constitution. I wrote mine on the theory of dialectical materialism because I was reading this book <laughs> by a guy named Marx. And he I didn't know all of it, but it's, it, he sounded pretty bad. So I was I was a fervent anti-communist by the time I was in my, you know, pre-teens. So yeah. that, that had something to do I with was too. reading Marx at the same time, but it was Groucho, not uh – yeah, Carl. Uh, what was the? It. Is it true that Aleppo is really the fourth Marx brother? Is that, is that right? <laughs> uh, only when you're high, I think, exactly, is the answer. Exactly. But uh, so um, you and I have a, another parallel experience, uh, an unhappy one, which mm-hmm. is uh, you lost your mom. I lost my dad at the same exact age. We were uh, you were 19, right? I was. Well, I was a little bit older than that. I was. I, I was. Uh, let's see, 20, uh, 30. I was twenty nine or thirty. Oh, 30. I see. Yeah, yeah. But uh, from uh, from uh, suicide. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, my mother was a, a troubled uh, person. She I mean, she never seemed to be able to hold a course in life. And uh, my parents had divorced uh, when I was nineteen. And uh, I guess that's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, Christmas, the Christmas Eve, and. Uh, uh, they might, you know, they they loved each other. In fact, they loved each other to the end of their lives. But they they they, they came to a you know a bitter break and uh, over where we were going to live, and uh, they divorced. Uh, and I found myself literally alone at the age of nineteen. My yeah. dad was living in Los Angeles, where he'd got a terrific job with Getty Oil as a he's a jolly he was a geologist. And uh, when they divorced, we were living in Salt Lake, and my mother immediately moved back to Reno. She did not like Utah, and was you know, there, if you're around the Mormon people, you either have a, develop an enormous respect for them as the as a people, or you come to loathe them. And, and I, I was the former; she was the latter. And uh, but anyway, she she led from then on a sort of a troubled life, sort of right on the edge of uh, of keeping it together. And <clears throat> then she remarried, and, had, and that broke up, and. She found herself literally without a house and without mm. a, you know, with the, you know, she was going to lose her house to bankruptcy, and <clears throat> she had you know dark, you know, dark moments. And my sister was with her, and they sort of cobbled together a, a path. You know, it was literally friends had said you can stay here, and somebody said you can have this car, and no, you know, we'll hard. help you. And so, but but she had finally there was a little bit of light, and um, my sister and she went for a ride, and 
my my sister said she just had a sense for the first time that mom was sort of you know in, in a period of time was starting to see that there was a possibility and within a matter of hours she had committed suicide oh my so drove yeah. into the desert uh took the exhaust pipe pumped it into mm-hmm. the cab of her little uh, of her little pickup and left a note to her children we were talking beforehand about um neither of us talked publicly about these things yeah. and uh when uh, 30 years after my father uh committed suicide when i was 19 years old i wrote a column about it because i realized that the same reason that he didn't get help that he needed was the reason that i didn't talk about it because yeah. somehow i th- treated it as a defect of character when it was mental illness yeah. and uh, Absolutely. and so many people uh, responded to that that i realized we have an obligation to talk about these things i i, I respect you for uh for talking yeah. about it. and we should just say folks out there who have those uh who are battling these problems or their families yeah. that there are a lot of folks out here who've gone through this and yeah. the most important thing is to get some help absolutely get it i mean if if possible if, you know get help for those that are suffering from mental illness you know think about it our our your dad my mom probably today if diagnosed early would it would be able to have um, some regime of drugs that would help them navigate this and yeah. uh, it happened to both of us in part because our parents didn't get help, and because society sort of looked at gay. Well, the odd thing about happen. mine was that my father, who was an immigrant and came here, went to school on the GI Bill, became a psychologist. And when yeah. he died, literally a hundred people came to that funeral who were patients of his, who th- said, "Your dad saved my life," and yeah. he couldn't save his own, yeah. which is yeah. uh, tragic. Yeah. But the reason I ask. Uh, in addition to talking about it, is the experience I had when I was 19 and my dad died. We were close. I wasn't close to my mother. And I felt at that instant that my childhood was over and yeah. I was on my own. And it, yeah. it's, it sounds like when your parents split up when you were yeah. 19, that's oh, yeah. what happened with you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I, I literally I was on my own. And, you know, I was a freshman at the University of Utah. I got to go to college because I got a $1,500 a year scholarship. And uh, but I was on my own. I was and the only place I could live was I literally rented a storage space underneath the eaves of of a house, and uh, you know slept on a slept in a sleeping bag. My closet was a nail, and my light was one of those. You know, you get them from a from an auto supply store. You know, with the wire yeah, cage yeah, yeah. over it. And uh, until I and and I was working several jobs trying to keep you know uh, trying to trying to make certain I had something to eat and could pay my my what little was not covered by my by my scholarships. Yeah. I uh we're going to take a quick break uh and I want to come back and talk about what ultimately evolved into your first big national campaign. Mm-hmm. So you poured yourself into uh not just the campus republicans in Utah, but you became active nationally in yeah. the campus of public. Yeah. You, yeah. We talked about feeling alone. I poured myself into newspapering. Yeah. You poured yourself into that, and that sort of became your mission. Yeah. Yeah, I, was, uh, I became, the by total accident, the executive director of the National College Republicans. Um, and uh, the chairman was a fellow named Joe Abadi, a lawyer, a young lawyer in New York City. And uh, I, I became the executive director for 
basically most of two years. And then uh, when his Was that turn, a paying job? Or? It was a paying job. Mm-hmm. Uh, it started out non-paying. I, was at the, I went back to school after the Illinois campaign. And, and i got to ask you about the Illinois yeah, campaign. But. exactly. <laughs> uh, I, 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 uh, I, I went back to, to school, but uh, the, there was a temporary executive director that was a part of a political deal. The body had become chairman. He was the vice chairman, and when the chairman had to resign because he became a uh, top employee at the Defense Department, the college Republicans were then at this point run by people who are not in college. So uh, uh, they hired a temporary executive director who turned into a disaster. And so I was asked to get on the plane uh, every couple of weeks on Thursday night or Friday and take a student standby, fly to Washington, D.C., <laughs> spend three or four days cleaning up the office, answering the mail, returning the phone calls, preparing the material, and then fly back to Utah to take my classes. And uh, at the end of this, a body got reelected to a two-year full term of his own and uh, asked me to become his executive director, which I did. Uh, just a, an aside on the Illinois campaign. Yeah. You came to work for Ralph Tyler Smith. Through who, him, the majority speaks. That was he, his slogan. <laughs> he, as a majority he, of about was, 46%, he as I recall. He was appointed when... Uh, Everett Dirksen yeah. passed away, yeah. and he was running against Adlai Stevenson the third. Not a bad ballot name. Yeah, not in you know, Illinois. You know, Adlai used to tell the story about going to see Mayor Daley in the early '60s and telling him he wanted a career in politics. And uh, he said, "Do you have any advice for me?" And Daley patted him on the shoulder and said, "Don't ever change your name." <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, so that was a tough. Race yeah, oh yeah. Uh, for you, but while you were there, you got involved in a little hijinks. Yeah, oh God, did I! There was ever. a treasurer's candidate from downstate Belleville, Illinois, named Alan Dixon, Al the Pal, a legend in Illinois politics, yeah. or he would become one, yeah. running for state treasurer. And you, uh, you yeah. uh, kind of messed around there. Yeah, I did a stupid thing, is what you do. You're being nice about it. <laughs> uh, there was a really attractive volunteer receptionist, young young girl, our age. Uh, and she, her, her parents were Democrats, and they got this very nice formal invitation to Dixon's headquarters opening in Chicago. And one other young guy and I got the stupid idea that what we'd do is we would take that invitation. It was obviously meant for you know the hoily ploily in the mm-hmm. gold in the Gold Coast of of North Chicago, and reprint it and distribute it among the bo- the bums in the Bowery, which we proceeded to do with the headlines of something like "Free Beer, Free Food." And then we distributed them around and got a piece of the Dixon letterhead from a news release and, you know, anyway, reprinted at a local print shop. Did they show up at his reception? Oh, God, they they just they (laughs) they stormed it. And, you know, so here's the here's the scene of, you know, hundreds of bums showing up at the demanding free free beer and free food at his rally. And he handled it with great aplomb. I remember exactly what he said. He said, this just goes to show that the Democratic Party is the party of the common man. (laughs) Anyway, all hell broke loose for a couple of days. I was told to make myself scarce downstate. Years later, I'm up for the board for international broadcasting that oversees Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. And who's on the committee that has to approve my Alan J. Dixon. Alan J. Dixon, who couldn't have been nicer about it and said, we all do stupid things when we're young. And we actually became friends. I helped him him, uh, try and find a publisher for his memoirs, which are a wonderful story of, I mean, they're a great story of 
downstate Illinois machine politics. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, I, he was, when he was writing it, he would tell me stories about it and say, should I put this in there? And I mean, things like, you know, there are guys with bags of cash sitting in the firehouse. Yeah. And so I said, put it in there. And it's a great little story about politics as it used to be. Yeah, no, he grew up in a very colorful yeah. era. I had uh, Abner Mikva on the show shortly before he passed away recently, and he was in the legislature when Paul Powell was the Speaker of the House. He was the guy who died, and they found $800,000 in shoeboxes shoe yeah, in his exactly. hotel room in Springfield. And I said to Mikva, were you surprised when you heard that story? Mikva said, only that the amount was so small. <laughs> so anyway, you 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 went from a staffer for the campus Republicans to essentially uh, taking over the campus. And you ran a national campaign to become... No, no, I, yeah, I, I was... Um I was encouraged by my by my mentors in college Republicans to run for the chairmanship in 1973, and so yeah, I ran. A which was a pitched campaign. battle. Which it was this a pitched became battle. like a big national oh, uh, battle. Well, it wasn't that big, but but my opponent. You're was, ruining my narrative. Yeah, well, there right? we go. Okay, it was a huge pitched <laughs> battle nationwide. Uh, the the opposing candidate was John T. Terry Dolan of uh, the District of Columbia College Republicans. His campaign manager was Roger Stone and Terry Paul Dolan, Dolan uh, who found, later went on to found the conservative political CPAC? action. CPAC, yeah. yeah. A National Conservative Political Action Committee. And then Roger Stone, uh, Morton Blackwell, who's the National Committee man even today from Virginia. And it was under. Was Norquist involved in this? Norquist was the. Uh, Grover Norquist. Yeah, he was the Connecticut chairman, I believe. He was at Yale. <laughs> and. Uh, and uh, a real cast of crazy characters. And uh, G- uh, Richard Vigory underwrote it. And I was the Rockefeller Republican. I was a conservative Westerner. But the, my, 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 uh, my sin was that when I was executive director of the College Republicans, you know, there were, there were Rockefeller Republicans. Nelson yes, Rockefeller, was, Rockefeller. Rockefeller was the New York governor. Who, and he personally selected the New York College Republican chairman. Kid named Ted Cruel, which whose father whose father was a famous boxing commissioner in the state. <laughs> but anyway, we, what my view was they were the they were the officials of their respective states, Massachusetts, New York, and my job was to deal with them. It was wasn't to ignore them. And so this was my cardinal sin. I was a big tent Republican, and and the other side you know wanted to be a smaller tent. Well, things have come full circle. We'll exactly. talk about that exactly. Uh, you know, when I was eleven, I went and tried to volunteer for Nelson Rockefeller because I thought the guy the who else Denver. but else? So they didn't know what to do with me. So they said, well, how'd you like to meet Jackie Robinson? Oh, my gosh. And I said, well, that'd be cool. And uh, and he was there because yeah. he worked for Rockefeller. Yeah. So I spent a half an hour with Jackie Robinson. That was the extent of my association with the Rockefeller campaign, <laughs> think, but a profitable one. Think, think what would have happened had they gotten you involved and— created a longtime loyalty to the Republican Party. I could have been carrying your suitcase. Exactly. So, we could have uh, been colleagues. <laughs> so, uh, but this campaign became like really, a, a pit, really big, big, big pitched battle. battle. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think the opposition spent like $75,000 on the campaign, which was a big amount. And it of ended in all kinds of controversy, and it was resolved by who? Well, it, we had a convention. It was a lot. It was not a. It was not much controversy because I had all the votes. But what happened is, is Dolan dropped out, and a, a guy decided to run and showed up with a bullhorn at the. At the <laughs> so they're calling the roll, and he would, and they'd say, uh, you know, New York, Ted Krulwick, and he would bullhorn and say, New York. Joe Shimoni, whom nobody had heard of. So, but so there's Ackerman. So it ended up with two, a contested election with two me having won the normal thing, 
and then him having won his own roll call. So they they have it uh, submitted to the uh, Republican national chairman, who is then a lanky, uh, failed politician from Texas named George Herbert Walker Bush, who appoints a committee to look into it and quickly resolves it. I mean, they, they had literally done this back then. Like the Ohio chairman was a guy named Bob Cup. And they came up with some other name, and they call up the state Republican chairman and say, you know, who's the chairman of the College of Republicans? He said, of course, Bob Cup. And they said, well, is it not Joe Jones? And he said, I have no idea who that is. And this happens in all kinds of states. So they quickly resolve it, and I, I get confirmed as chairman. And then I pick as my executive director the South Carolina uh, chairman, yeah. whom, whom I gotten to know in a fantastic week of traveling throughout the South in, my, in, in a rented Ford Pinto a kid named Harvey Lee Atwater. And so I give Lee Atwater the job, the staff job, bring him to Washington, and we are summoned to meet the chairman of the Republican National Committee to get the lecture. You know, don't screw up, don't <laughs> misspend your money, do what we tell you to do, don't make, you know, don't make a scene, all that kind of stuff. And at the end of this fatherly lecture from, uh, from uh, obviously, President Bush now, President Bush 41, Atwater, who would get sort of agitated when he was nervous, he was agitated. He said, uh, "Mr. Chairman," uh, the chairman <laughs> says, "Do you have any questions?" He says, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mr. Chairman, I got, I, 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 I got a question. Is it true you have a Boston Whaler with two fifty-five Evan Roods on the back <laughs> on the Potomac?" Bush says, "Well, yeah, I do, Lee. Uh, can I buy it this weekend?" <laughs> He's met this guy 10 minutes before, received the stern lecture about not screwing up, and his question is, can I borrow you? But he says, I- I've run that kind of boat before, and, 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 and I know how to operate it, and there's this really cute girl coming up from South Carolina named Sally, and I'd really, really impressed if I could take her out on the Potomac, and I'll, I'll return it full of gas. And but had just enough hoods, Bob Bush says, well, okay. Really? And he brings up Sally, and guess and what? They get married. They get married. Yeah. So, yeah. That's a, so, and this began... Uh, like a lifelong association yeah. for you with the Bush family. Well, yeah. Two two months later, uh, this was August, and in early late September, early October, uh, his uh, Bush's chief of staff, Tom Lass, called. I was working on the Hill, and I was college chairman and going to school. He said uh, Bush would like to offer you a job as his special assistant. So I went to work for George H. W. Bush, and and uh, for the next year, we're, remarkable experience. Really remarkable human being. I mean, this is a really fine person and a great uh, teacher of of character and uh and i got to work for him is that why you moved to texas well yeah uh, what happened is he then went to china you may remember he's yeah, considered for vice president and became the, the guy did just about every job you yeah, can do exactly and uh and I stayed on at the committee and went to work first to director. I was working for the director of education training, then became the chief of staff for the co-chairman. And But I'd met a young girl during all this who was an intern from Texas, and uh, we eventually got married, and I, that, I was dead. I, I had to move to Texas, and that's what got me there. And uh, and you you obviously met George W. Bush through all of I this. did. In fact, uh, the, about Thanksgiving of 1973 uh, – he was kind of, he was at Yale, and actually me at uh, Harvard Business School, and Tom Lass said to me, called me up and said uh, he's going to be coming down. He'll taking a train down from Boston. He'll get to Union Station. He'll call down. Uh, he said I'll be you know he was going to be Tom was going to be on Capitol Hill. Uh, Chairman Bush was going to be down at the White House. So um, my job was to meet George W. Bush in the lobby and give him the keys to the family car. 
So Bush arrives. I walk. I'm down in the lobby. He walks in. He's wearing his Air National Guard flight jacket, cowboy boots, and exude more charisma than you could ever imagine. And here's the little nerd meeting him. <laughs> and I hand him the keys to the family car. Now say a lot of things about the Bushes, but he's not. They're there. He this Bush Senior is not car proud, and he had a guy uh, who sort of a factum driver, you know, a handyman named uh, Rhodes, Don Rhodes, and Don had gone out and found the cheapest car he could on sale, which was a purple gremlin <laughs> with Levi Strauss interior. Now, George W. Bush had taken a little bit of his money from working as a roughneck in the oil patch uh, when he went to Harvard and bought himself a used red sports car that he drove around Harvard Yard. So I give him the keys to the purple gremlin, and he is not <laughs> impressed. He is not <laughs> impressed. But that's when I met him, too. And you went, when you went to Texas, you started... Uh, you you got into the direct mail business. I did. It took me a couple of years. I went down there and, and tried to figure out what to do. And I started out uh, working in the legislature. We had uh, uh, 16 Republicans out of 150 in the Texas House. We, we had just had a terrific election in the Texas 31-member Texas Senate. We increased our numbers by 50% in one election. We'd gone from two to three. And so I went to work in the legislature. Then I ran Bush's, uh, George H.W. Bush's pre-presidential PAC, the Fund for Limited Government, which uh, our chairman was uh, James A. Baker III, a young Houston lawyer. Our finance chairman was Johnny Bush. Our principal spokesman was George H.W. Bush. And for most of its 18-month existence, I was the staff. Uh, Eventually, we brought on uh, a a guy to travel with Bush in September and October of 74. And... Uh, Margaret Tutwiler brought her on in the summer of 74 to be the, uh, uh, excuse me, the summer of 78 to be the secretary uh, and scheduler. And what uh, led you, uh, and through, I mean, you know, you and I come from different sort of orientations in mm -hmm. politics. I'm not talking about partisan, but um, I was not the numbers guy. Yeah. I was sort of the message guy. I mean, we all do all of these things. But you you have a sort of an, as, We've heard you recite just about every name that was. I mean, you have not sort of an encyclopedic knowledge of precincts, counties, yeah. and so on, which those those kind of skills sort of lend you lend themselves to the direct mail. Yeah, they do. Uh, well, and I like to write, and uh, and I like things that you can measure. And I had stumbled into doing some direct mail when I was uh, working in politics in Virginia uh, in 1976, and. Uh, and beyond then, the Alan Dixon mailing. Beyond the Alan Dixon. Well, it wasn't a mailing. We handed that one out. We wanted, it was directly targeted to bombs on the Bowery. Um, stupid thing. Uh, but I, I'd sort of, I'd sort of stumbled into to it. But I'd always been interested in numbers. You, you mentioned precincts. I always liked election returns, and I had a book of election returns that you know was sort of like if you have a baseball almanac. Yeah, I had, I had like the, sabermetrics. Right. I had this. I, you know, I had the. I had the political almanac, and, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, I arrived in Texas at a time when Texas was poised for change. I went to work for the first Republican governor that we'd Bill had. Bill Clements. Bill Clements that we'd had in 114 years, and it was then. He, he was getting ready to run for re-election. He said, I was deputy chief of staff, and he said, I want you to run my campaign, and if you do, you'll be the chief of staff, which would have sort of made my chops if I wanted to be a lobbyist, which is the last thing I wanted to be. And I said to him, I, I, when you were my age, 30, uh, you started your own, uh, mm-hmm. you know, your own uh, 31, actually. Yeah, you started your own business. I'd like to start my own and be direct mail. And uh, I'd like you to be my first customer. And it had just enough chutzpah 
Yeah. I let Lee Atwater ask him for the boat that he said, <laughs> yeah. So I began my business then. And uh, became kind of a legend in the project of turning Texas from uh, blue to red. Yeah. Uh, but again, being in the right time at the right in the right place at the right time. I mean, Texas was ripe for change, and we had visionary leaders like Bill Clements, John Tower, George H. W. Bush, and Phil Graham, who really, by their leadership, changed the state. Uh, Going to take another short break here. We'll be back with Carl Rowe. The association with uh, the Bushes. Um, talk, talk. Obviously, you you probably worked with him in the 1980 race uh, versus Reagan, which yeah. was a. Uh, well, I, I ran the run up by the by the time of the race itself. I was uh, working for Clements in Austin. Um, Bush, had, you know, one of the things was Bush said Jimmy Baker said, "Look, you 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 work in the campaign, and then uh, you know we'll go to Washington." I didn't want to go to Washington. I had. Uh, wanted to start a family. I wanted to be in Texas. And uh, I, I didn't want to go back to Washington. I, there was just something that said that would be a bad move for me. Uh, and I enjoyed what I was doing. And and I did, and also, um, you know, it just didn't seem right. I don't know why. I mean, I just, I loved Bush, and I, I still do. But it just being involved in the presidential campaign, I look, I traveled most of 18 months with him. I mean, it was him and me. And you know, there's something during that campaign for during the, during, during the during the run-up mm-hmm. during the 1978 elections in '77 and '78. I mean, I was it. I was traveling with him, and now suddenly I was going to be sort of you know steps removed and someplace in the bureaucracy. Yeah. And uh, but the main thing was personal. My, my 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 wife and I were talking about starting a family, and just didn't seem to try and do that in the middle of the presidential campaign. It's also true, I think, that you you get a better feel for the country. When you live in the country and yeah, not in Washington, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so Bush became vice president. Vice president. Um, I, I just, in the interest of time, I want to push it forward to George W. Bush and his uh, rise. He he owned owned the Texas Rangers. He decides yeah. to run for governor. Yeah, he 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 had run for Congress in 1978, been defeated. It had been talked about running in 1990. Uh, thought it was inappropriate to run since his father was president, thought that that would sort of draw him in, put him in an awkward place. Ironically enough, the 41's defeat in, in 92 sort of freed Bush to think about running for governor. And he, 1993, he started thinking about running for governor of Texas against Ann Richards, who was enormously popular. And uh, he sort of demonstrated enough strength that it discouraged everybody from running, everybody else from running. So he had a clear primary, minor candidate in the primary, but... Um, and um, during that period, he he as governor, uh, there there was sort of this anti-immigrant wave that right. was California mm-hmm. uh, and so on. Pete Wilson's uh, proposition there, and, and he took the opposite view. Yeah, and you guys through the years in the White House became uh, strong advocates for immigration yeah. reform. Why? Right. Well, first of all, we're a border state, and we got a lot of, uh, you know, we, we got a healthy culture that has uh, got a, a, a lot of Latino contributions to it, and and we understand that, you know, we need to have a secure border, but we had a broken system. The system had been broken for years. We had catch and release, uh, people coming here illegally, being arrested, and then being released on their own recognizance, given a hearing date, and never showing up. That just sort of bred... 
a, a belief that there was not a um, you know resp- lack of respect for law. We had people who had come here illegally and had then worked and uh, found themselves a part of our culture, our economy, our society, but their status was up in the air. We have a system also that was broken. John Kennedy uh, began a concept called family reunification, which is the heart of it sounds pretty good. If Let's keep families together. But what it meant, what it evolved into, is that if you had a distant cousin who got here from Addis Ababa, you claimed a relationship with them and put your name in a lottery, and then we drew, you know, 70,000 people a year by lottery. And it wasn't your brother. It wasn't your mother. It wasn't your father. It was your distant cousin. And uh, and then we then we made, distingu- made no distinction between the kinds of people that we wanted to come to the country, if you had a degree or something. So, I mean, the system was, whole, was right. broken. From and all over line. Texas, you had people who were undocumented workers yeah. who were part of the fabric and, and, of communities. Yeah, well. and who and who were— who are at the risk of being, you know, of having their wages stolen because they, you know, they, you're sitting there, you're undocumented, and somebody mistreats you in a work environment. Well, what kind of recourse do you have? You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to surface and say, oh, incidentally, I'm, I've been here illegally for ten years, and and he's not paying me a fair wage. I mean, we had, we had that kind of, a, and we wanted to resolve it and resolve it in a fair way, and in a way that would be sustainable over a long time. A key element of it is you have to have a guest worker program. You have to allow people to be able to come here temporarily to work and then go home. Otherwise, uh, you know, and to be able to, to circulate. It's been obviously a source yeah. of, uh, of debate. I want to come back to yeah. the immigration issues. Yeah. George W. Bush, what, obviously he had a difficult term, uh, uh, two terms largely defined by Iraq. But what, what, Tell me about him the way you see him. Tell me about the relationship you had with him and the kind of person that you had. We talked before about the fact that if you're going to do a presidential race, do it with someone with whom yeah. you have bonds of trust. Yeah. Well, uh, look, first of all, this this is not objective. I mean, I'm, I'm not objective about him. I yeah. Know, but, no, but, obviously. But, that's... But, but on the other hand, I've seen him up close. And first of all, people, I love it. People sort of say that, you know, village idiot from Midland, you know, that was – that was a common criticism. This guy was a Yale history major and a Harvard MBA. He's really smart. As long as I've known him, there's been a book on the night table and an interesting conversation about something available. I mean, he is really smart, and it was great working for somebody who was really smart. It's also great working for somebody who knew he wasn't the smartest person in the room and didn't want to be. He wanted to get every smart person around him. He created this ability for people to come in and say, you're not looking so pretty. And that, as you know, is really important in a, in a White House. It's easy to isolate. That that office has such yeah. power of presence that it causes. Yeah, there's people always people to, willing to tell you that you're uh, you're, that you're doing great. You're yeah. doing great. Everything. Mm-hmm. I'd have some member of Congress in my office, you know, pounding on the table saying, "You guys are a bunch of morons, and you're doing X, and you should be doing Y." And by God, if the president knew that, he'd you know, and I'd say, "Well, great. He's got a little time on his schedule. Why don't we walk in and say hello and cheer?" <laughs> and walk in, "Hey, Mr. President, how are you doing? <laughs> Barney's looking great. Laura's looking fantastic, Mr. <laughs> President, how's your golf game? I mean, yeah, you know, it's like that that's, kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. funny things happen around yeah. that office. You know? And he also, I almost didn't go to Washington, which was sort of odd because he told me to get rid of my business, and I had. I'd sold my business to be involved in the presidential campaign. And when we won, uh, he said, isn't it great we're going to Washington? We're going to be in the White House. And I said, I'm not certain I want to go. I had that same discussion yeah. with Obama. 
because, you know, I think you probably heard the same things. People say, oh, greatest job you'll ever have and the worst. Big egos, people will be knifing in the right. back. Right. There'll be ugly stories. You'll say something in a meeting and, you know, and, and it'll be repeated in the New York Times, making you look like an, a moron. And I'm, I'm okay at campaigns. I'm really not good at internecine and warfare. And Bush said, don't worry. Trust me. He said, uh, I saw what it did to my dad's administration. I saw what it did to Reagan's. And it'll be different. And it was. I mean, we had one of the great things about going to the White House. And one of the reasons I stayed nearly seven years was I had great colleagues. And you could you could have significant disagreements with them. But you'd walk away sometimes convinced, sometimes unconvinced, but always with enormous amount of respect for their abilities. Let me ask you about Iraq. And I don't, I, again, I don't want to get into a, a, we can have a long debate about these right. things. But what would his years have been like had you guys made a different, gotten different intelligence, made a different decision on yeah. Iraq? Um, I don't know, because look, there, here's the imponderables. We knew what we, you know, we, we knew what we knew. And it turned out to be wrong. But let me just put it another way. Let's let's assume that the intelligence said he doesn't have active programs. He has an interest in them, but he doesn't have active programs. He's got dual-use facilities, which he had, and he's got these engineers and technicians and scientists that he's got on the payroll, but he has no active programs. So don't go in. Here's a guy who thumbed his nose at 14 resolutions of the United Nations saying live up to the terms of your surrender agreement and make a full accounting, and he hadn't. Here was a guy who was undermining the uh, oil for food program, literally taking tens of millions of dollars out of it in order to keep together the dual-use facilities and the technicians. What would have happened, and he fully had an intention to restart these programs, and he was convinced that the West was losing interest, the U.N. was losing authority, and that he would be able to reconstitute these programs. And what happens if that had all happened after four or five or six years and these programs had been restarted and we had this madman in control of Iraq? So history is what it is. Uh, and you can go back and sort of Given what you what just if, said, what knowing if. what you know now, yeah. would you have advised him to go? Uh, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it would have brought up a second, uh, you know, first of all, our concern was these programs and the intelligence pointed to active programs. We were worried about his uh, record of support for terrorism. Mm-hmm. And this was a guy who was, if you were a suicide bomber, your family right. got money from him. Uh, yeah. And he was actively keeping these elements, allowing these elements in a totalitarian country. He was allowing al-Qaeda and these others in. But if there had not been, if there had not been a sense that he had WMD, then, then I don't think the president would have sought the authorization of use of force. We would have found other ways to constrain him. Let's jump ahead to where we are uh, today in in politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, Donald Trump is uh, obviously built his primary campaign on opposition to Im- not just immigration reform, but undocumented workers, talked about deporting them all, building the wall, yeah. and so on. Uh, he's opposed to uh, free. He's opposed to trade agreements. Uh, you, you guys were free traders, uh, and uh, and there are a series of things uh, that that he has promoted that are completely antithetical to what I understand to be your concept of republicanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does a and there are, and you represent a large chunk of Republicans. Uh, how, do you, how does this all cohere? Well, 
I think it largely coheres. First of all, let me just say on the immigration, there's, I've got a nuanced view on this. Yeah, he says build a wall and make Mexico pay for it and deport them all. But he also said we'll, we'll have an, a door, a beautiful door in that beautiful wall to let them right back in. What's interesting to me is with a few exceptions, Mississippi and Alabama, I think, are the only exceptions. The rest of the exit polls show the majority, by almost mm-hmm. two-to-one margin of Republicans in the primary, said um, – Let's find a way to f- provide legal status for those yeah, who are here. It was it was it was striking. Yeah. So I think I think it wasn't the specifics; it was a tone. They looked at what the current administration had done, the executive order. They looked at the border and they said, "We need to have somebody grab control of the border." And he's the strong guy who promises to do it. I think it was less the. In fact, I talked to a lot of Trump ordinary Trump voters, and I say to them, "Do you think, particularly in Texas, do you think we, he'll really build a wall and get Mexico to pay for it?" And they said, "Oh no, no, no!" But he's going to get control of the border. So and I think that's, that's sort a sentiment. Of his rallying cry. Yeah, the- I think it's a sentiment rather than the specifics. Uh, but yeah, look, uh, we were free traders, and remain. I remain a free trader, and but we we're also tough about it. Remember, we got a lot of criticism by some for in two thousand and two, under Section uh, you know three hundred one, bringing tariff actions against the Chinese and 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 uh, slapping tariffs on rolled steel. So you got to you know I understand the. The, the politics of trade are never easy. Let, let's talk about TPP. No, no, understood. Uh, but here, but 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 Crossroads, the, uh, the 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 organization that you run, very influential, mm-hmm. uh, well funded vehicle, hasn't engaged in the. Yeah. You obviously have misgivings. Well, look, we're driven by our donors, and we had a lot of donors, and and we had signals from the Romney campaign in in 2011 and 12 that if he won the nomination, they hoped that we'd be ready, and we were ready. Uh, And we'd have no similar signals this time around from Donald Trump. Now, so we've got plenty to say grace over on the Senate. I'm glad we, you know, we we spent a year preparing for for 2012 to be in a place to play in the presidential race. We had no similar you know, preparation period this time around. Carl, it seems to me that there's been in the party, in your party, this battle between um, sort of center-right, I would describe them, center-right, business-oriented Republicans, uh, uh, who your donors probably reflect, and you reflect in many ways, and uh, a more um, populist uh, right. Yeah, right. Um, the, will this election resolve the tension between those two? No. In fact, I think popular. you mentioned populism. I think populism is roiling both parties. I mean, think about Bernie Sanders. I mean, this is the first Democratic convention of any sort he's ever attended. This is the first time he's ever run for office as a Democrat. And Just he, shows that we're broadening the Yeah, party. exactly. Now, listen, the, the fact is that— uh, but, but, uh, there but, are there are there are there are debates within both parties. Yeah. But I'm just making this as a clinical point. I'm not. Yeah. Oh, I, I the Democratic it. Party is a little more coherent right now than the Republican. Well, that's party. that's any party that can, has the White House is slightly more coherent. Right. But the fact that both parties are being roiled by. I mean, would you have sat here a year ago and said he's going to be able to raise several hundred million dollars without holding a Bernie, single no. yeah. But let me ask you about uh, uh, Trump. Uh, can you you had a theory, and I think it was the right theory, that you needed to reach minority voters. George W. Bush got forty four percent, I believe, of the Hispanic yeah, right. vote in two thousand and four when he won reelection. Um, can you get elected president um, if you uh, are getting 
twenty less than the twenty seven percent that yeah. Mitt Romney got. Well, uh, uh, the, the theory that the Trump campaign theory is is that they'll offset their losses among Latinos with an increased share of the blue collar working class, high school educated Democrats. But they're also losing. Uh, Mitt yeah. Romney won college educated yeah. voters by fourteen whites well, by fourteen percent. He's in the CBS poll that just came out losing them by about yeah. the same margin. Yeah. Well, look. Uh, don't ask me to do – it's not my theory. We'll see if their theory works out in about 50-some-odd days. Well, what I'm asking and knowing, knowing that you're too smart to maybe answer is you know the numbers as well as anybody yeah. in the political business. Do they add up? Theoretically, they add up. I mean, high school-educated white voters turn out at 53%, college-educated at 78%. If you pop that number from 53 to a significantly larger number, the math could work. Will the math work? We'll learn in a few days. I will say this, though, stepping back for just a minute. Think about Texas, big red state. We have a much higher percentage of the population that's Latino than the national average, higher population percent of our population black than the national average, higher percentage of the population that's Asian-American than the national average. We are younger than the country. We're less affluent than the country, and yet we're a big red state. And it's because Republicans routinely get 40 to 45 percent. And there's a low registration and participation rate on the part of some of those groups, particularly Hispanic. Well, but that's that's the trend everywhere around the country. I mean... Uh, but the fact of the matter is that in Texas, we win their votes. And why and how? Because we're a party in Texas that represents the diversity of our state. When Bush ran for re-election as governor, a minority of our ticket were white men. Majority were black, Latino, or women. And Republicans, our, our governor got elected with 50% of the Latino vote. Why? In part because he ran a TV ad with his mother-in-law in it. Right. Anglos looked at that ad and said, "God, he's got his mother-in-law saying nice." But that's things not the him. campaign Trump's running. Well, I'm, I'm just saying though that, that, that you think that's the formula. I think that's for the formula. I think that, that's uh, that's the formula for Republicans, and it doesn't involve you know sort of cha- changing your principles. It involves sharing your principles with every community in every corner of the state. Uh, so, are are you troubled by some of the stuff that Trump has said and done? Uh, yeah, but who, it, you know, I'm also troubled by some of the things that Hillary Clinton has said and done. I think a lot of Americans are saying about this election, is this the best our country can do? Mm-hmm. I, well, I, uh, you're asking, you're now getting into the dangerous questions, man. <laughs> I know, just at the end. I, I'm so enthralled by your hopefully, story. I'm just hopefully getting Hopefully we've lost most of our listeners by this point. <laughs> uh, do you, are you worried about, uh, the, the, the backlash to Trump, uh, Costing you, you've got a bunch of senators running in blue states yeah. uh, for re-election. They were yeah. elected in an off year. They're now yeah. running in a presidential yeah. year. Yeah. How much of a, a headwind does he create for those senators? Well, the fact that they're running in blue states with a, in a presidential election year creates a headwind of one, one on, on, on its own. On its own. But but the interesting thing is is that in the minds of most voters in these states, he's not us, and he's and we're not him. They're sort of looking at the presidential campaigns for both candidates as as being separate and apart from uh, the the uh, uh, Senate races themselves. It's very odd, and we could have a situation like 1992, where whichever party wins the White House, uh, people say, I, you know, if we think Trump is going to win, I'm going to vote Democrat. If I think Hillary's going to win, I'm going to vote Republican for the Senate because I don't want him to. I don't want him to, you know, have a blank check. Do you? Um, but the but the history has been that 
these races tend to follow the presidential vote. Yeah, but what I'm seeing lately, yeah, lately. What, what I've seen in the polling this year is, is look, we got a record number of undecideds, a record number of weak adherents. We're back to 1992, maybe 1996, and every one of these candidates, with one exception, is running ahead of the presidential ticket on the Republican side. And that one exception is, well, by the end of the campaign, he'll be running ahead of the presidential ticket. It's just that he's not well known, in Indiana. But in the rest of these races, I mean, look at Rob Portman in Ohio. Talk about the quintessential battleground state. And you mentioned the CBS poll, new poll out, you know, battleground state poll, showing him up by what was it? He's run a really strong. I mean, he's, he's run the best race this year with maybe. lots of money and lots of defining of the opponent yeah and then same in florida marco rubio 11 points up i don't think he's really 11 points up but the cbs poll said that but i but well how would you rate the chances of keeping the senate better than 50 50 better than 50 50 yeah Yeah. uh would you have said that two months ago no uh last question i've been i was thinking about what happens after if trump doesn't win how would you rate the chances of him winning by the way well, he's the underdog. I mean, the Democrats have an easier path to 270 electoral college votes than Republicans. He's got to win all the, the Romney states. And as you know, three of them are up for grabs. North Carolina, he's yes. behind. Arizona and Georgia barely ahead. He's got to win Florida, got to win Ohio. But that only gets him to 253. Right. He's got to find another right. 17. And I think he'll win Nevada. I think he'll win Iowa. But even that only gets him to two. Was that, two 265. And, and that, that last five, he's got to win either... New Hampshire and the second district of Maine or Pennsylvania or Michigan or Wisconsin. So it's kind of an inside straight. It is, yeah. Uh, if he loses, um, don't you anticipate that he'll say, you know what, if the Carl Roves of the world had put their money and their effort into this race, we could have won the election? Yeah. Well, that's not what he said when he stood up on a stage in in in, uh, in uh, Dallas for twenty and spent twenty minutes tarring my posterior by saying <laughs> I was a complete moron and an incompetent boob. So I don't I don't think that'd be too credible. But look, stepping. But back, he meant it in a nice way. He meant it in a nice way. Uh, both parties are going to be roiled by uh, by internal stresses and strains if the, if they lose. Republicans will be. Democrats will be. Uh, and but but neither if if either candidate Clinton or Trump says you know what it's not my fault that I lost it's somebody else's fault I don't think that's going to be correct. what does the party have to do if you do lose this election to reconstitute itself and make it a national party yeah well it needs to put forward people who are going to be able to broaden the reach of the party people who can demonstrate in a willingness to take timeless conservative principles and apply them to the new circumstances of the country so that people who are not typical Republicans say, you know what, that party is speaking for me and my and my family and my community, and they're going to uh, confront the issues that I'm concerned about in a way that makes sense to me. And not going to be easy for either party to do that. And both parties, even if even if the party wins, it's going to have to do that. Even if it, who, whichever party wins is going to have to do that because both parties are being disrupted. And these forces are, that are disrupting both parties are not going to go away. And both parties have had a run. I mean, the Obama coalition was the Obama coalition. It's not necessarily every Democrat's coalition. And the Reagan coalition, that mattered when Ronald Reagan was alive and in the decades afterwards. But he was you know, elected 36 years ago. And the country was and looked country, a lot different yeah, at that time. Yeah. Listen, Carl Rove, I appreciate it. I always enjoy uh, 
chatting politics with there you. I go. never agree with you. And that's oh, not yes, true. I sometimes yes, agree with you. I sometimes agree with you. Yes, you do. I often for... don't agree with you on stuff. Why are you ending I, on a bad but, note, man? Why are you ending on a but, bad but, note? But, but I really, you know, appreciate people who are in the arena, yeah. like Teddy Roosevelt said. Yeah. And you, brother, have spent your life in the arena. And uh, for that, uh, I admire you. Well, thanks, David. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Thank you.